Hello, and welcome to Tiny Insect, episode 1.13, The Opium War. Last episode, we talked about the Daowang Emperor's appointment of Lin Zexu to stop once and for all the illegal smuggling of opium into the empire. Lin successfully put the British traders, who were responsible for bringing all that opium into Qing China, under siege at Guangzhou until Britain's chief superintendent, Charles Elliot, agreed that all of the opium in their possession would be turned over and that the queen would compensate the opium traders for their losses. It took months to collect all of the contraband in what I think was the largest drug bust in world history. Lindsay Shu then had it all destroyed with lime and flushed out to sea. We'll start this episode by following the letters Charles Eliot sent back to Britain, pleading for an armed response and arguing that it would lead to a permanent settlement and vindication of the wrongs perpetrated against the British by the Qing. Word of what had transpired in Guangzhou began reaching the British government via merchant ships in the middle of August 1839. The traders, large and small, immediately began a campaign to ensure that all of Elliot's IOUs for the opium would be honored. It wasn't just the opium traders who were concerned. The standoff had closed down all trade, which threatened the livelihoods of traders as well as British manufacturers who sold their cloth and other goods to China through the port of Guangzhou. Charles Elliot's letters home were received by his boss, the foreign minister. That man's name was Henry John Temple though everyone just calls him Lord Palmerston. Palmerston was born in 1784 into a noble family with holdings in Ireland, although the family mostly lived in and around London. After inheriting his father's title and property as a teenager and then attending university, he was elected to Parliament. An impressive speech to Parliament and patronage from powerful friends helped him land the job as Secretary of War in 1809 right in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars. Palmerston held that post all the way up until 1828. Palmerston first became Foreign Secretary in 1830, and we first met him there, dispatching Lord Napier to Guangzhou when no more suitable candidate could be found. Lord Palmerston had long resisted calls for an armed intervention in China, something that many of the so-called free traders had been calling for with varying degrees of intensity for years. The traders were peeved that they weren't allowed access to ports beyond Guangzhou or to trade with merchants besides the Hong monopoly and wanted the British government to force the Chinese government to change their policy. Free trade advocates, including the co-founder of one of the largest firms operating in Guangzhou, James Matheson, had gone so far as to write up and publish plans for how such a military campaign might be prosecuted in the wake of Lord Napier's death. We met James Matheson and his business partner, William Hardeen, back in episode 1.10. They were leaders of the free trade movement and published a local English newspaper in Guangzhou. Hardeen had departed Guangzhou right before Lin Zexu showed up, and he arrived back in Britain in September along with news of Lin's crackdown on opium use and smuggling. Hardeen began a campaign of newspaper articles and editorials pushing for armed intervention. He also met with Lord Palmerston at the end of September, though he didn't find the Lord as receptive to an aggressive response as he hoped, at least not at first. The meeting with Hardeen was one of many Palmerston took in September and October. Although the matter of Lindsay Shue's opium crackdown and Charles Elliot's grand capitulation are quite important to the story of this season of the podcast, they were far from the most important issue facing Lord Palmerston and the Foreign Office in the fall of 1839. In June 1839, an Ottoman army was crushed by Egyptian forces fighting for Muhammad Ali Pasha. In early July, the Ottoman Sultan Mahmoud II died, leaving the empire to his 16-year-old son. The same month, the entire Ottoman navy defected to Ali Pasha and Egypt. The Ottoman Empire was in crisis. 
the threat of complete collapse to the benefit of Ali Pasha and his French allies consumed the bulk of Lord Palmerston's attention as letters from Charles Eliot begging for military intervention in southern China piled high on his desk. Lord Palmerston coordinated a joint intervention by British and Austrian navies against the Egyptians, which culminated in 1840 with the defeat of Ali Pasha's forces. Ali Pasha withdrew, and the Ottomans were acknowledged to have nominal lordship over Egypt. After months of off-and-on debate, Lord Palmerston and the other members of his cabinet concluded that a military expedition against the Qing was called for, following the template that Hardeen, Matheson, and their allies had been pushing. Basically, the British believed that they were unbeatable at sea. Sail, a relatively small fleet to China, blockade Qing ports on the lower Yangtze River to threaten the Beijing grain supply, destroy coastal fortifications, and capture an island or two. They believed this would be enough to force the Qing to the negotiating table. Palmerston had no intention of conquering the Chinese mainland or deposing the Daoguan Emperor. Why did Palmerston and the British government decide to take this path? Well, Elliot had promised a lot of money for the seized opium. Since he was a representative of the crown, Palmerston was in a tough spot. It would be very difficult to completely renege on the deal without tremendous political and economic fallout. But the Queen wasn't going to just foot the bill for two million pounds of opium. A military expedition looked like the best, least costly solution, at least politically, if not monetarily, to this predicament. Palmerston knew domestic opposition would be strong, but by pushing for demands long championed by the free traders, the government would also have strong allies in their push for war. In November 1839, Palmerston issued orders to the governor of India to ready an expedition to China. He hoped that this expedition could be timed so that it began in the spring and could be wrapped up by the late fall and the beginning of the trading season. The foreign secretary wrote a letter addressed to the Daoguang Emperor, outlining British demands, which included compensation for the seized opium, paying for the cost of the military expedition tasked with delivering this letter, the opening of more ports to British trade, the dissolution of the Hong merchant monopoly, extraterritorial justice for British subjects, and the surrender of an island as a permanent colony. In the end, this is pretty much exactly what the British will get, but it took much longer than a single trading season to force the Qing to concede to those terms. Given that the conflict is known as the Opium War, one demand notably absent from the letter was the legalization of the opium trade in China. This would probably have been a bridge too far domestically, and traders, such as Hardin and Matheson, didn't care much for legalization either. They'd already invested a fortune in specialized smuggling ships and trade networks in China. It was more profitable for opium to stay illegal, so long as the Qing just didn't take enforcement too seriously. Palmerston dispatched orders to gather forces in India without notifying Parliament which prevented scrutiny of the decision until news broke of the build-up in early March 1840. After months of stalling and refusing to answer questions about what his plan was to respond to the situation in Guangzhou, Palmerston could no longer avoid a debate in Parliament. The government in which Lord Palmerston sat was already on rocky footing thanks to a mix of domestic issues and a scandal, and their political enemies gambled that the issue of an unpopular war would lead to a successful vote of no confidence. The political opposition was led mostly by working classes, religious groups, those advocating for universal suffrage and electoral reform, and abolitionists. The name Opium War, that I have been using for the conflict, was in fact coined in an opposition newspaper as a derogatory term for the war, since that's how the opposition saw it, a war to support the opium traders who were poisoning the Chinese people. And I think they pretty much had it right. No one really disputed that the war was about opium. The pro-war faction wanted to force the Qing to pay for all the opium that Elliot had bought in the Queen's name, while the opposition to the war 
didn't think that Elliot's promise should be honored, and they hoped the traitors would be left bankrupt by Lindsay Shue's seizure. The leader of the opposition and author of the vote of no confidence over the war started the debate. After making a moral argument against the war, he turned to economics. He estimated that the British government at home and the government in India made about one-sixth of their combined revenues directly and indirectly from the trade with the Qing Empire. Going to war risked shutting down the entire trade, and he believed that was a risk Britain couldn't afford to take. I don't know if his estimate of revenue was accurate, but his argument was a double-edged sword. While he argued that the war wasn't worth the risk, advocates for the war argued that a swift and violent campaign was the only way to preserve and maybe even expand access for British traders. If you could make so much money in China with trade restricted to six months in one city, imagine what they could do with year-round access to several ports spread throughout such a vast empire. Also, as we've looked at in earlier episodes, some large percentage of the trade with Qing China relied upon the opium trade for its existence. Without that, even the trade for things like tea would not be as profitable. The most vocal supporters of the war were the opium traders and other beneficiaries of the trade. When Palmerston finally spoke during the parliamentary debate in support of the war, he said what was at stake in the conflict was, quote, the honor of the British flag, and the dignity of the British crown, end quote. After three days of debate, Parliament finally voted to support the government's war plans on April 10, 1840, more than a year after Lin Zexu arrived in Guangzhou. The margin of victory was razor thin, 271 for and 262 against. And it only made it over the top, based on the lie that it would be a very limited war. See, Palmerston neglected to inform Parliament about the demands that he was making in his letter to the Emperor, which went way beyond anything that the pro-war faction had argued for in public. If the government's actual position and demands of the Qing had been known, then the vote of no confidence almost certainly would have passed. Wars based on lies and omissions of truth are not new. Back in Lingnan, we left Lin Zexu and Charles Elliot fighting a sharp, short battle over some British traders who had just signed Lin Zexu's pledge not to trade opium, either to protect those traders or prevent them from trading with the Qing, depending on which side you believe. Over the following eight months, I'm actually not sure what happened. The two books I'm using as my main references for this main narrative of events don't discuss at all, save a passing reference to Lin Zexu receiving a demotion as the British refused to fully submit and a dam collapsed in Hubei province, the province where he'd previously been governor general. Wikipedia adds a little bit of information, saying that after the battle in November, Charles Elliot ordered his navy to sail for a harbor off of Hong Kong Island and that in January, the Daoguang Emperor ordered merchants of other nationalities not to provide any assistance to the British. Maybe Elliot and his crew just dropped anchor and bobbed in the ocean for six months? I don't know, that's the best I can come up with. It's probably not important either way. And, until Elliot submitted to Lin Zexu's demands, the situation was left unresolved, and Lin Zexu was stuck in Guangzhou, until the British gave him what he wanted. The fleet dispatched to force the Qing to the bargaining table on British terms arrived off the coast of Guangdong province in the early summer of 1840. It was led by an admiral in the Royal Navy named George Elliot, cousin of our good friend Captain Charles Elliot. To make the names and roles even more confusing, Lord Palmerston established a joint command and gave both men the authority to negotiate directly with the Qing. George Eliot was a veteran of the Napoleonic Wars and had decades of military service, but he had no experience or training in diplomacy as far as I can tell and had no special knowledge of the Qing or China. 
he appears to have been appointed to lead the expedition because he was geographically convenient, since he had been stationed in South Africa at the time of this assignment. Lindsay Shu insisted in reports to the Emperor that the newly arrived British fleet was simply part of a large opium smuggling operation, definitely not a sharp escalation in the conflict, just more of the same. Although the fleet was, I guess, ultimately part of the British Empire's efforts to sell opium into the Qing Empire, this wasn't an honest description of the war fleet that had arrived. A bit later, Lindsay Xu's dispatches to Beijing claimed that saboteurs of some sort had burned more than 30 British ships and killed many of the barbarians. Suffice it to say, there's no evidence of this astounding victory in any other sources. Lin's issue was not alone among the Daoguang Emperor's servants in his exaggerations, fabrications, deceptive and rosy descriptions of events on the ground. Lack of good information hampered the Qing reaction to British aggression on both a tactical and strategic level throughout the conflict. Reports of British movements and many battles were inaccurate and slow, usually taking weeks to arrive in Beijing because it was rare that the emperor or his officials opted to use the express mail service that the Qing had in place. Daoguang himself was ignorant of his enemy, their capabilities, and their motivations, and didn't think it was necessary to start asking questions until it was too late. At the end of the war, he still wondered in a letter where England even was. Why did they sell opium? How did they come to have so many Indians fighting in their army? Was it really true that they were ruled by a 22-year-old woman? Was she married? This had real consequences for how the Qing dealt with their foreign guests. Several months after expelling Elliot from Guangzhou, but before the fleet from Britain arrived, Lin wrote to the emperor that, quote, Despite their guns, the foreign soldiers are not skilled at infantry engagements. Their legs and feet, moreover, are closely bound by their tight trousers, which makes bending and stretching inconvenient. When they reach shore, they are thus powerless, and their strength can easily be controlled. End quote. This isn't to say that no Chinese people, especially in the South, had knowledge of foreign people. The Hong merchants and those working for them certainly knew some things about them, and might even have had occasion to observe them moving quickly in their tight trousers. But Lin didn't ask or care for their opinion. When it came to dealing with the British, the Qing displayed a great deal of imperialist arrogance and self-delusion. The Qing had a sophisticated understanding of their diverse regional neighbors, from the Muslims of the West, the tropical states of the Southeast Asia, to the Russian Empire expanding into the cold north. But these were all territories with whom they and previous Chinese dynasties shared common borders. Despite the fact that the British had been trading regularly in Guangzhou for more than a century, the relationship never went much beyond that. It was a blind spot that would cost the Qing Empire dearly. George Eliot's fleet arrived with 19 warships, including four steamers, and about 4,000 infantry, which was combined with the existing force that was already in the area. A few ships moved to blockade Guangzhou, while the rest departed to sail north. Their destination was the mouth of the Yangtze River. The Yangtze is China's largest river, stretching far into the continent's interior. The region around its mouth was the richest and most densely populated region of the Qing Empire. This was the region where Lin Zexu longed to be governor general after he was done breaking the opium trade in order to improve grain transportation on the Grand Canal, which ran north to the Yao River and then on to Beijing. The mouth of the Yangtze was a critical region for the Qing, and the British hoped that by threatening it and the grain supply to Beijing, they could force the Qing to come to terms. The fleet's first destination was the island of Joshan, a rich and strategically important island that lay several hundred miles off the coast from where the Yangtze reached the sea. George Eliot believed that Joshan would make an excellent base 
from which to operate against the mainland. His fleet arrived there in early July. After the Qing garrison refused to surrender, it took the British war fleet just nine minutes to defeat the defending junks, mortally wounding the Qing admiral directing defenses and to silence the shore batteries. Within a few hours, the British infantry landed and began to take control of the island. They found it deserted. Nearly a million residents fled in the face of the invasion. The battle itself cost the British basically no casualties, but over the next several years, thousands of soldiers would fall ill on the island and nearly 500 would die from malaria and dysentery. More British soldiers died of illness than were killed in action during the entire conflict. Before departing Joshan, George Eliot installed the Prussian missionary and eccentric linguist Karl Gutzlaff, who we've met in past episodes, as head of the occupying forces, sort of a military governor. The Eliot brothers and their fleet then proceeded west to the mainland, where they tried to have the letter stating their terms delivered to a Qing official, who could then forward it on to the emperor. However, no Qing official would accept the letter because they knew that foreigners were supposed to communicate through the Hong merchants down in Guangzhou. So, the British decided to proceed north to Tianjin and to deliver the letter to the emperor himself. The responsibility for sorting out what these barbarians wanted and why they had come to Tianjin in force fell to the governor general of the province that encompassed both Tianjin and Beijing. This man was named Qishan. Fifty years old, Qishan was a Manchu of noble birth and had spent his adult life moving from high posts to higher posts, not because of any particular skill, but from the blessings of his birth and good relationships at court. As a Manchu noble, he never had to pass the same exams that gave men like Lin Zexu a pathway to membership in the elite. This exemption for nobility was also a practice in Britain at the time, where someone like Lord Palmerston could receive his university degree without actually passing the university exams. Chishan used his various official postings to become spectacularly wealthy, most likely through the kinds of corruption that plagued the Qing bureaucracy we've talked about in previous episodes. If Lin Zexu rose to the highest echelons of Qing politics because he was exceptionally incorruptible, Chishan excelled for playing the game of corruption and patronage really well. Daoguang ordered Qishan to soothe the British, and soothe he did. After they arrived in mid-August, Qishan provided the soldiers and sailors with fresh meat and produce. He wined and dined Charles Eliot and led him to believe that the British were making headway towards achieving their demands. It was all Lin Zexu's fault, Qishan told them, and everything would be sorted out in good time. Now, why don't you head back to Guangzhou? and I'll come meet you there, and we can take care of everything. Impressed with Qishan, and believing they'd finally found a partner they could work with, Elliot's agreed to return south. Having now received, and at least in theory, read Lord Palmerston's letter, the Daoguang Emperor acted as though he could safely ignore British demands for financial compensation, trade rights, the island of Hong Kong, and permanent representatives. From the perspective of the Daoguang Emperor, the Qing Empire wasn't in a real war with these British barbarians. In documents from the Qing court during this period, the British were described in terms such as clowns, bandits, pirates, robbers, or rebels. They were not given the status of an opposing state or empire with the standing to be at war with a power like the Qing. This was not a war between equals, but a quarrel with troublemakers. The British demands were not even to be entertained in 1840. The emperor seemed to have really believed that the main problem was Lin Zexu, and that removing the troublesome minister and restoring the pre-opium seizure status quo would leave the barbarians content as he thought they had been before. So he dispatched Qishan to follow the British down to Guangzhou, relieve Lin Zexu, and set things back to the way they had been before Lin Zexu tried to rid the empire of British opium. The Qing had already agreed to nothing while their gunboats sat anchored at the gateway to Beijing. 
Kishan had made such a good impression on Charles and George Eliot that the two British negotiators felt that they could trust him to cut a deal, with the island of Joshan as leverage. In October, about 18 months since he'd arrived in Guangzhou and proceeded to crack down on the poisonous opium trade to such short-term success, Lin Zexu learned that he was out of a job. Governor General Deng was also relieved of his duties. I haven't quite been able to figure out the timeline, but after being fired, Lin continued to work for his empire and raised a volunteer militia of around 800 men paid for out of his own pocket to help defend Guangzhou and its environs against British incursions. Lin was eventually banished to the empire's far western provinces until 1845, when he was rehabilitated by the Daoguang Emperor and appointed to several more governor generalships, though never to one so prestigious as Jiangsu province. He would die in 1850, while en route to put down a small rebellion of mostly Hakka mountain men, whose leader claimed to be the son of God and had declared the Taiping heavenly kingdom. Charles Eliot and Kishan restarted their negotiations in Guangzhou in December of 1840. Eliot decided that the demands Lord Palmerston wanted him to make of the Qing were unrealistic, and that it would be better to ignore his boss's orders and just settle for less. Eliot considered it immoral to press for the favorite demands of the free traders, and mostly just stuck to demanding that the Qing pay for the opium that he'd guaranteed. Eliot dutifully brought up Palmerston's demands for five mainland trading ports, consular representation, extraterritoriality, but when Kishan replied that no, he would never agree to that, Eliot simply moved on. But after weeks of negotiating, it became clear to Eliot that Kishan didn't want to concede anything or even pay for the opium. He wanted things to go back just the way they were in January 1839 before Lindsay Shu arrived. Just pretend the last couple of years hadn't really happened. It was also around this time that Admiral George Eliot left the campaign due to poor health and left the negotiations and military command in his cousin's hands. After a month of fruitless back and forth, Charles Eliot had had enough and ordered the Navy sail to Guangzhou. Despite the Qing spending the last six years reinforcing their forts and building more on the approach to the city, the British ships and marine landing parties blasted their way through them one by one nonetheless. Six years had not improved the fort's designs, with open tops that exposed them to shelling, or improved the morale of Qing soldiers, or the quality of their cannons. Making the job easier for the British was a newly arrived ship named Nemesis, Britain's first iron warship. Nemesis still had tall masts and sails, but also sported a pair of steam engines that could propel it forward against river currents or on windless days, as well as iron armor. This advanced piece of technology wasn't actually owned by the British Navy, but was ordered by and built for the East India Company, and was then commissioned by the British government. With a draft of just six feet, Nemesis could safely navigate into waters inaccessible to other British warships. This was not welcome news to the Qing Admiral, who had pulled all of his ships back into waters he thought were too shallow for the rest of the British Navy to pursue. Nemesis reached them, and just about destroyed the entire fleet by herself, thanks in part to a lucky hit early in the fight that triggered a large explosion. This was enough to break the morale of the crews on the other ships, who abandoned their posts and fled. After a few hours of fighting, hundreds of Qing soldiers and sailors were dead, and hundreds more wounded. On the British side, there were a few dozen wounded and no deaths. After the day's drubbing, Kishan requested a ceasefire, and the negotiations began again. He was now in quite a bind. A few days before the attack, he'd received a letter from the Emperor commanding him to refuse all British requests and to not even talk to the foreign bandits anymore. The Emperor ordered him to remain strong and, if necessary, destroy the invaders. But Kishan also couldn't put off Elliot any longer, or he risked facing even worse military setbacks. So, Kishan decided to do what most of the Emperor's ministers did when the facts did not align with the Emperor's wishes. Ignore the Emperor, and hope things turned around before he exiled you, or worse. 
So Kishan sort of tentatively agreed to a proposal from Elliot that the Qing would provide the British with 6 million silver dollars in payments to help cover the cost of the seized opium and grant British residents at Hong Kong akin to the Portuguese lease at Macau. In exchange, the British would return the island of Joshan and trade would resume. When they learned about the agreement, both Beijing and London rejected the terms and fired the men responsible. The Daguang Emperor rejected the agreement because Kishan had given too much, while Lord Palmerston complained that Elliot had not gotten enough and took it as a personal insult that Elliot had so blatantly disregarded his instructions. I think $6 million was enough to cover the cost of the opium that Elliot had guaranteed, though it's unclear from the sources which type of silver dollars we're talking about in which circumstances. But it certainly was not enough to cover the cost of the military expedition Elliot now commanded, which Palmerston had listed among his required war aims. The concession of a lease in Hong Kong was also not a proper annexation and the colony that Palmerston had demanded. No extraterritoriality, no new ports of entry, and no money for the fleet. This was not what Palmerston had demanded. It seemed that in the two years since Charles Elliot had first ridden to the rescue of the opium traders and promised that the queen would pay for all the opium that Lindsay Shu demanded, he'd had a change of heart. He wrote that it would be wrong to open the Chinese market to more opium, quote, by fire and sword and desolation, end quote. He now considered it against the, quote, character and dignity of England, end quote, to act in such a manner. Unfortunately for Charles Eliot, Lord Palmerston did not see things this way. When he heard about the deal in April, he immediately sent a letter to Eliot dismissing him from his post and ordering him back to Britain. Lord Palmerston had no problem using force to extract concessions and enforce the material interests of the state and its citizens. Kishan learned that his replacements were on their way much sooner, in mid-February 1841, and their orders would be to annihilate the foreigners. Kishan continued to stall while he was waiting for them to arrive, but on February 20th, the British ended negotiations and the fighting resumed. The Qing had not miraculously fixed their military problems in the six-odd weeks since the last engagement. Morale was in the toilet, and they were still outgunned. In one case, Qing commanders locked their men inside one of the forts so that they would be forced to stand and fight, and then fled themselves. The soldiers did not appreciate this, as you might imagine, and turned their cannon to fire on the fleeing officers. Not all Qing officers were so uncommitted to the fight, however. The highest-ranking commander in the area pawned his own clothes before the battle so that he had enough money to pay his officers' bonuses to hold their ground. But the officers fled anyway, and the commander was killed in the fighting. Some Qing sailors were so afraid of the British that they held themselves underwater and drowned to avoid capture. The results of this battle were even more lopsided than before. 600 dead on the Qing side and hundreds of cannon lost, while the British suffered just a handful of injuries. Kishan's replacements arrived in early March, while the fighting was still ongoing. They ordered the disgraced minister hauled off in chains and confiscated his property. Kishan would go on to receive a death sentence, which the emperor commuted to banishment, only to be fully rehabilitated in 1842, just over a year after his failure. Kishan was then placed in high-level positions around the empire as if nothing had happened. The pair of men who replaced Kishan were named Yishan and Yang Fang. Yishan, who ranked above Yang, had previously served as a bureaucrat in Xinjiang, leading a colonization effort there. Yang was an old military veteran called out of retirement for the assignment. He'd cut his teeth fighting the White Lotus and rebellions in Xinjiang and was so deaf that he could only communicate through writing. Their orders from the Daoguang Emperor were clear. Quote, Exterminate the foreigners. If you have the words reopen trade still in your mind, then you are completely betraying the purpose of your mission. End quote. According to one local Chinese chronicler, 
Yang's best idea to fight the British was to, quote, buy up the city's toilet buckets to defend us against the foreigners' cannon, then to make straw effigies, carry out Taoist rites, and supplicate the ghosts and spirits, end quote. The problems with the Qing military defense went way beyond any single commander, and Yang wasn't any more or less effective than his predecessors in the end. As for Yishan, a local Yue writer recorded his feelings on the matter thusly, quote, Yishan had no interest in logistics, battle plans, the lie of the land, about strategies for victory and defense, for subduing the enemy or resisting foreign aggression. The only thing he was good for was buying watches and woolens and giving or attending grand banquets, end quote. I believe the mention of watches and woolens in particular was also a subtle way of calling out Yishan's supposed interest in foreign goods, since watches and woolens were some of the only non-opium products that the British had successfully exported to China before the war. By the end of March, British sailors and marines had pushed into Guangzhou and occupied the old trade factories. The city of Guangzhou itself was now threatened with invasion and occupation. Charles Elliot used his new leverage to demand that trade resume immediately. Not seeing any other options, Yishan and Yang agreed to the ceasefire and the resumption of trade. They tried to spin the agreement into a great victory in their correspondence with the emperor, although it went against his explicit orders. For both the British and the local elites in Guangzhou, the agreement was a welcome relief. There was tea to be bought and sold after all, and it wasn't going to do anyone any good just sitting in the warehouses. The opium boats hadn't even waited for the ceasefire. During the fighting, They'd ridden Nemesis coattails up the river as she blasted away, meeting their Chinese counterparts behind clouds of burnt gunpowder to hand off shipments of opium. Over the course of the next several months, thousands of Imperial soldiers, summoned from across the empire, arrived outside Guangzhou, although they brought little in the way of useful weapons or morale with them. Yishan and Yang gathered what guns and explosives they could for an attack on the British and cobbled together a navy, not to fight with, but for ships to light on fire and steer into the enemy vessels. Civilians that could fled the city for the countryside. In addition to the troops from far-off provinces, tens of thousands of local militia were organized, something we're going to talk much more about next episode. Ishan finally gave the orders for Qing forces to drive out the invading clowns on the night of March 21st, 1841, because the emperor wanted the barbarians destroyed and Yishan was determined to try. He didn't notify Yang, however, who was supposed to be the military commander, because he feared Yang would try to prevent the attack from happening at all. That night, the factories were almost entirely abandoned, because Charles Elliot was well aware that Yishan was preparing an attack. Preparation had not been well hidden. The first few minutes of the attack seemed promising. The factories were stormed. Cannon hidden inside the city opened fire on four British warships anchored in the harbor, and the windless night made maneuver difficult. But promising only lasted a few minutes. Also anchored in the harbor was the Nemesis, and her steam power didn't need wind to operate, so she came to the rescue and blasted away at the shore batteries until they fell silent. The fireboats lit and came close, but didn't quite reach their targets. By morning, the tide washed them back into the city, where they lit part of Guangzhou on fire. Three days later, on May 24th, around 2,400 British soldiers began to systematically seize all remaining Qing forts around Guangzhou. Within a couple of days, They'd captured a hill overlooking the main city and set up a small battery of guns that could easily lob shells over Guangzhou's enormous city walls, which ran 6 miles, were 25 feet high, and 20 feet thick. The week of fighting had cost the small British force 15 dead and over 100 wounded, with many, many more casualties for Guangzhou's defenders. Inside Guangzhou, morale was worse than horrible. 
Yishan ordered the execution of local residents who questioned his competence to defend their city. Local Yue soldiers attacked and killed other soldiers from Hunan province, whom they suspected of sleeping with lepers and then eating children to avoid catching the disease. One resident of the city observed, quote, innumerable bodies strewed the streets. All discipline was lost. A confused clamor filled the ways, and everywhere I observed plunder and murder. Several thousand of our soldiers ran away after loading themselves with robbed goods and then pretending they lost their road in pursuit of the enemy. End quote. Before the British began shelling, Yishan struck a deal with Charles Eliot to save the city, with terms that were very similar to those that had been discussed back in January between Eliot and Kishan, and then subsequently rejected by their bosses. The new agreement also stipulated that Yishan, Yang, and their non-local forces remove themselves from the city and retreat at least 60 miles away. Guangdong province would be safe from further attack, Eliot told Yishan, but British attacks might continue elsewhere in the empire if their other demands were not fully addressed. As we'll look at in more detail next episode, by no means did this mean that the British positions around Guangzhou were secure or free from attack. Yishan declared victory to the emperor. His lies were so bold that he actually succeeded where Qishan had not and convinced the Daoguang emperor that everything was settled in the Qing favor. Yes, there were six million silver dollars in payments, but Yishan insisted that these were actually just corporate debts that the Hong merchants had already owed the British, definitely not a ransom. He concocted battles in which the Qing armies were victorious out of whole cloth. Neither British nor other Qing sources discussed them. In Qishan's telling, it was the British who sued for peace and not him. The Daoguang Emperor bought the story, showered praise and promotions upon Yishan, and ordered that extra military forces across the empire demobilize because the issue was solved and they were expensive. But on August 10th, 1841, Charles Eliot's replacement arrived, signaling a whole new phase of the war. Sir Henry Pottinger was recently returned from India after decades of service as a soldier, spy, and colonial administrator. He was a man who was not shy about using British military might to get what he needed for Her Majesty's empire. Like Charles Eliot, Pottinger was the younger son of a large, minor noble family, the type of man who was the workhorse of British colonial and military power. Pottinger came up in the rough-and-tumble world of British India with the East India Company as the corporation slowly brought all of what would soon become the British Raj under their influence. The first thing that Pottinger did upon arriving was put poor Charles Eliot on a boat for an ignoble return back to Britain. Next, he spent about 10 days gathering the lay of the land, consolidating existing troops with those he'd brought with him, and informed Yishan that he'd come to demand the terms first delivered to the Guadalajara Emperor the previous summer. Without receiving the satisfactory answer, he departed with a large force and proceeded northeast to the rich city of Xiamen in Fujian province. If there was any city on the Chinese coast that was prepared to resist British invasion, it was probably Xiamen. Its military commander, had ignored the Daoguang Emperor's orders to dismantle defenses and send troops home after he'd bought Yishan's lies. He'd gathered an impressive 15,000 soldiers, hundreds of new cannon in preparation for the city's defense against the British naval invasion. It didn't do him any good, and Xiamen fell within a day as poor morale led to mass desertion of the forts and the cannon that had been built up at great expense over the previous year. In one British account, a single officer storming in the open front door of one fort was enough to send the entire garrison scrambling out the back. From Xiamen, Pottinger ordered his men north to retake the island of Joshan. Charles Eliot had surrendered the island back to the Qing as part of his effort to make peace with Qishan back in February, a sin that Lord Palmerston found unforgivable. The Qing resistance was a little bit more effective than it had been the previous summer, as they did actually manage to kill a few British soldiers in the battle and wound a few dozen. In the end, though, the result was the same. 
With his base firmly established on Joshan, Pottinger quickly ordered his troops to begin a campaign on the mainland. The strategy would be the same as what Charles Elliot was supposed to have pursued before Qishan sweet-talked him back to Guangzhou. Seize the rich cities of the lower Yangtze River and cut off the grain supplies flowing up the Grand Canal to Beijing. The first stop was the city of Zhenhai and its citadel, which guarded the approach to the first big prize in the region, the city of Ningbo. The Yangtze River empties out into Hangzhou Bay, and Ningbo was on the southern side of that bay. The Zhenhai fell after a good day's fighting with the normal completely lopsided casualty rates, a few dozen for the British and perhaps 1,500 Chinese killed. The next day, after Zhenhai's commanding officer successfully poisoned himself, all of the Qing resistance in the area collapsed. By mid-October, Sir Henry Pottinger and his small army entered Ningbo unopposed. Before continuing with the next and final phase of the war, I want to pause and draw attention to something that didn't happen during the Opium War. Systematic, local resistance to British occupation. There was some resistance, which we'll talk a bit more about next episode, but it was limited in scope and usually in reaction to misbehavior by British soldiers. The norm during the war was for Qing subjects to accept the presence of British soldiers and return to their normal lives as best they could. When Joshan was reoccupied, one British officer felt that the island's inhabitants, quote, quickly recognized their old friends and appeared very happy at seeing them return. Before three days had elapsed, a good market was established, and everything went on quietly as if we had never abandoned the place, end quote. Now, I don't necessarily buy that people were happy to have foreign soldiers in their midst, but they definitely didn't take up arms or wage any sort of organized guerrilla campaign either. In Ningbo, the British had to be careful not to walk around by themselves or stray too far from their camp or risk being kidnapped and ransomed or just murdered, a fate that befell a few dozen British soldiers during the occupation of that city. But this was more akin to organized crime than a spirited defensive nation. Once established in Ningbo, Sir Pottinger paused for the winter and awaited for more reinforcements from India. He installed the Reverend Karl Gutzlaff, who we last saw running the British administration on Joshan during the island's first occupation, as the magistrate in charge of Ningbo. Gutzlaff seems to have spent his day doing two jobs. In the first, he was a one-man judge and jury, known to the locals as Daddy Guo, Guo being Gutzlaff's Chinese name. Second, he acted as Pottinger's spymaster. At some point, he connected with several men who he still knew from his days translating for the opium smugglers in the 1830s. Gutzlaff's spies provided profiles of the Qing leaders in the area and kept him informed of their latest plans to attack and retake the city. To combat the British advances and the threat posed to the empire's most prosperous region and the grain basket of the capital, the Daoguang Emperor turned to his 48-year-old nephew, Yijing, the director of Imperial Gardens and Hunting Parks. I don't know if Yijing knew his way around a hedge or a rare orchid, but he had little military experience. Not that experience had done Yishan or any of the other Qing commanders much good so far in the conflict. Yijing spent months dithering after his appointment in mid-October 1841. Then, in February 1842, reinforcements from Sichuan province arrived after traveling around 2,000 kilometers from their home province. Numbering around 700 men, the Sichuanese wore tiger skin tunics, tiger heads, claws, and tiger tails. Lavelle writes that Yi Jing was so impressed by these soldiers that he took it as a sign that, quote, he must launch his attack on the hour of the tiger, on the day of the tiger, in the month of the tiger, in the year of the tiger, a traditionally auspicious day in Chinese warfare, end quote. This meant that the attack on Ningbo would take place on March 10th of 1842. The Qing weren't alone in drawing soldiers from across their empire. British army units fighting in the Opium War came from Chennai, Bengal, Ireland, Scotland, and elsewhere. The origins of the English verb loot come from Hindi, and the word made its way into English during the Opium War. 
I imagine it went something like this. A Hindi soldier heads into a rich merchant's house to steal some silks and silver. When his Scottish comrades ask what he's up to, he tells them that he's looting the place. And then they say, that's a fine idea. I think I'll go loot that house over there. Yijing soldiers did in fact begin their attack on British forces in Ningbo just after midnight on the Day of the Tiger in the Year of the Tiger. On paper, the Qing had 36,000 men as part of the attack. The occupying forces were fairly spread out, and so it seemed possible that the Qing forces would have a good chance to overwhelm British positions with sheer numbers. But bad luck, bad weather, and worse communication got in their way. In one instance, 3,000 Qing assaulted a British position defended by a mere 140 soldiers. The attacking forces included the 700 Sichuanese dressed in their tiger uniforms. Unfortunately, they had mistranslated Yijing's commands, which were not written in their native language. The actual order was to keep firearm use to a minimum in order to reduce civilian casualties, which was a nice thought on Yijing's part. But the Sichuanese thought that they weren't supposed to bring their firearms at all, even though they'd actually come fairly well equipped for a Qing unit. So, they assaulted the occupier's position with just their long knives. It still took the arrival of a British howitzer and canister shot to drive them away, leaving hundreds dead and injured. Properly armed, it's likely that the Sichuanese troops would have overrun that British position. Along with the assaults on Ningbo and other British garrisons on the mainland, Yijing also sent a fleet of boats filled with soldiers to retake Joshan. All the soldiers on this expedition were from inland provinces, had probably never seen the ocean before, and became very seasick as soon as they set sail. The fishermen that were hired to pilot the boats were also unfamiliar with Joshan and the surrounding islands. Together, they ended up just sailing around the coast for the next few months, never attempting an attack. Like his predecessors, Yijing ignored this inconvenient truth and simply lied to the emperor telling him that the British Navy had been defeated in a great battle in which more than 20 of their ships were sunk by fireboats. The Daoguang Emperor, as always, believed this at first, but the truth came out eventually, and Yijing was arrested, imprisoned, and exiled to Xinjiang, where he died of malaria in 1853. The British had held their ground in Ningbo through the winter and early spring of 1842 to avoid the risk of bad weather that might hamper their progress, and because they were waiting for about 10,000 more soldiers. After the troops were gathered and warm weather had dried the spring mud, they took up the offensive. Their first objective was the city of Japu, on the northern side of Hangzhou Bay, guarded by a garrison of 8,000 Manchu bannermen. As usual, the British fought their way toward the city with relative ease, with most defenders simply fleeing. But then events departed from precedent. The last major Qing defense outside the city was at a temple in which nearly 300 Manchu bannermen held in stubborn defense. After losing several soldiers attempting a frontal assault on the compound, the British decided to set it on fire. Most of the Manchu soldiers not killed in the fighting or by the fire committed suicide by slitting their own throats. Only a few dozen survived. When the British finally entered the walled city, they found a scene full of blood and screams. Houses and courtyards were piled high with bodies, the people having killed themselves or been killed by their family members. Parents filled the city wells with the bodies of their children before slitting their own throats or taking poison. The invading British soldiers left records of their horror, but it's also clear from the sources that they didn't stop them from looting the city and, according to Chinese sources, dividing up the surviving women for systematic rape. Accounts from the cities captured later in the summer lend credibility to this account of British behavior. The awful fight at Japu set the tone for the next few months of bloody fighting, as the British met much more stubborn defense, even if it was only slightly more effective than what they'd encountered before. That's because they were now fighting Qing bannermen, the hereditary military class that had been the backbone of Qing power for two centuries. As we looked at way back in episode 1.4, the quote-unquote Manchu ethnicity 
had been sculpted through deliberate Qing policy and was not natural. Even though it has been two centuries since the initial Qing conquest, the Manchu identity still wasn't fully formed. The full split between quote-unquote Manchu and Chinese fully emerged only after the Taiping Civil War. As a military caste, though, the Manchu took military matters as seriously as scholars did their studies, and breaking and running did not come as easily to them as the soldiers the British were used to fighting in Guangzhou. They were also defending their homes and families who resided in the cities that were under assault, not some random place hundreds of miles from home. From their victory at Japu, the British proceeded to occupy the other major cities around the mouth of the Yangtze River, including Shanghai. From there, they moved upstream to the city of Jinjiang, a strategically important city close to where the Grand Canal meets the Yangtze. In the run-up to the Battle of Jinjiang, the garrison commander put the city residents through a terror, convinced that the greatest threat to the garrison came from betrayal within. One witness wrote, Quote, false rumors of spies swirled around the city, and every house was searched. People were killed on the flimsiest of suspicions. Everyone was terrified. End quote. No one was allowed to leave or enter the city for days before the British arrival. The garrison commander was so focused on the potential for betrayal from inside the city that he neglected to stock any supplies or food, which quickly ran out. In late July, a force of 7,000 British infantry assaulted the city after a long artillery bombardment. The defenders outside the walls fled, leaving just a few thousand bannermen inside the walls to defend the city. They fought ferociously, although many had not eaten in days. Although casualties were still lopsided, the British suffered their first substantial battlefield losses of the war, 39 dead and 130 injured. The slaughter and suicide inside the city's citadel equaled Japu. Lavelle writes that, quote, Groups of 14, even 20 bodies, were found hanging from rafters in single houses, while most of those taken prisoner later succeeded in starving themselves to death. End quote. Descriptions of British behavior during this later part of the campaign differ, but overall, they don't paint a positive picture. According to one British soldier, they shot disarmed and fleeing soldiers, quote, as coolly as if they were shooting crows and bayoneted to death those who fell wounded, end quote. Rape seems to have been widespread as well. Though one must read a bit between the lines of the Victorian accounts to see it in the British sources, it's very clear in the Chinese. On July 27, 1842, the Daoguang Emperor received two letters. One, described the defeat, death, and destruction at Jinjiang. The second was a desperate letter from the Governor General of Zhejiang Province, writing from the provincial capital at Nanjing. He wrote, quote, The emergency is inexpressibly serious. Please think of something quickly to save us all. End quote. Nanjing wasn't just any city, but was the second capital of the empire and the provincial capital of the empire's richest province. Losing it would be a very serious blow. The Daoguang Emperor wrote back that his servants should act as circumstances require to save the city, quickly, and not to waver. It was the first time the emperor had granted his representatives any latitude to address British demands and do anything meaningful except try to exterminate the invaders which hadn't been working out for the past three years. Over the next few weeks, Qing officials attempted to negotiate with the British, now anchored and camped outside of Nanjing. The terms demanded by the British hadn't really changed since Charles Elliot sailed up to Tianjin in August 1840. A war indemnity, which was now increased to 21 million silver dollars, the opening of five treaty ports with fixed and very low 5% tariffs, the ceding of Hong Kong Island, the disbanding of the Hong Merchant Monopoly, and extraterritoriality for British citizens. Another important piece of the treaty guaranteed the rights of Christian missionaries, both Catholic and Protestant, to live and preach inside those treaty ports. I'm not sure if this was explicitly included in Palmerston's original instructions, but Karl Gutzlaff did help with the negotiations, 
so I'm sure he was keen to include this provision. The final agreement ending the Opium War, the Treaty of Nanjing, was signed on August 29, 1842. Next episode, we're going to start by taking a short step back to the spring of 1841. The Opium War triggered some major shifts in the lives of those who lived in Lingnan. These changes started during the war in the communities around Guangzhou and spread in the aftermath of the conflict. We'll also reflect back on the Opium War, how defeat to the British left the Qing in an even worse economic position than when the Daoguang Emperor first sent Lin Zexu to stop the Emperor's silver from draining abroad. And finally, we'll indulge in some speculation as to what this all meant for a young Hong Shiquan. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a five-star rating and review. Ratings and reviews will help other listeners find the show. If you have any feedback for the show, comments, or questions, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TinyInsectPod. Thanks.